Well, thank you very much for inviting me and for understanding. I appreciate being here, learning a great deal already. So, a little bit of a departure now. I, will, uh, I was asked to talk about uh, time urgency and obesity as it relates to hypotheses that I've put forward before, and I'll run through these fairly quickly. The basic concept, I think, which is uh, evident in our discussion already today, is that obesity doesn't stand alone. It's tied very much to the elements around it, and it's a cascade in many senses when you think about the unintended health consequences. So if you look at this cascade here, I will move through it uh, in the next 20 minutes and give you some sense of what I think may be going on from the standpoint of both the environment in which we live and the physiology that results, obesity being part of that cascade. Well, it's no, it's no secret to any of us that actually in the last 20 years with the change in the electronic media particularly, we're able now to move information around the world much more rapidly than we did before. We've essentially diminished distance and time as a factor in the constraints of <coughs> behavior. So we end up with circumstances where you can be sitting here in, in uh, Oxford and talking to somebody uh, over the email uh, many thousands of miles away, and you can fly rapidly, as we've seen already, from Seattle to Oxford for conferences such as this. Time has diminished uh, the way in which we can communicate with each other. The other thing that's happened is, of course, that in that communication, we have become more individualistic in some ways. We do not have the usual interaction that we're having today in these electronic systems. So this is a random photograph taken some uh, months ago in the Chicago airport, and I, when I got home, I realized that none of these people are actually talking to each other. One is playing with his laptop, the other is on the Blackberry, and the third person is making a telephone call. So interaction these days is not great, and this whole concept of a 24-hour society has become part of our ethos. So we have books written about it, and in fact, this uh, on the, on the uh, left-hand side, you see an English work. On the other side, I was sitting next to a young woman uh, flying to New York some months ago again, and this 25-hour magazine is there because in New York, 24 is never enough. So you can see that the gestalt is there. The other thing which is interesting about America, and most of my experience in the last 20 years has been there, is that it's driven by a consumer ethic which is very, very powerful, even more so than here in England. So today, for example, it's called Black Friday in America, and it's called Black Friday not because something dark happens, but because this is when most of the merchants go into the black, because that's when, after the Thanksgiving Day, which was yesterday, people begin to purchase things for Christmas. And this tends to increase the revenues of the merchants such that they do actually make money for the whole year. This is, for example, a very small town in Upper New York State, where my daughter happened at the time to be a veterinarian. And this was on the front page of the newspaper. Well, it looks rather addictive as people rush through, the, having had the, a, a big meal the night before, they're now rushing through the doors at 6 a.m. to buy something very important. So what you see in America is a consumption which is dramatic and much greater than it is in many other industrialized or post-industrial countries. We consume in the U.S. 
about $24,500 a year, as you see on the slide, in purchasing power. Compared to other European countries, which you see here in Australia, it's way ahead, <coughs> a third as much greater. For example, uh, Denmark, uh, we've heard a lot about Denmark this morning already, is a gentle conservative country compared to uh, America in how much we consume. But the production per hour is about the same. And so what this means is that the Americans work much harder and much longer in terms of time than do Europeans. But the productivity per hour, therefore, is something that doesn't change. We have this myth that America is more efficient. It isn't. It's just that people work longer. And in order to do that, they also have to borrow a lot of money because in order to consume that amount of of goods per year, you can't do that without just on working harder. You have to do it by also borrowing and mortgaging your future. So you have this fascinating situation where everybody is on an extraordinary treadmill. This is an environment which is very toxic. A hypothesis that might be useful here then is that in the middle you see the opportunity and choice and the novel technology drives an increasingly manic or exuberant response, which then, in turn, feeds back both to the consumer and to the merchant. So innovation is extraordinarily rapid. You can buy a cell phone which works perfectly well, and six months later you have to change it because you need a different color or it has something more on the face that you didn't have earlier. That innovation is then debt financed, and it goes right back to the <coughs> biology of all of us, which is that we are driven largely by self-interest, largely by competition, and largely by curiosity. These are the engines that drive the market, if you talk about it from a biological standpoint. So let's look a little bit at that. What is this relationship between the stressful environment, if you'll buy that from me for the moment, and the fast food and obesity cascade. Well, what you already probably know about the human stress response is that it's closely coordinated through the brain between the three major communication systems of the body, which is the immune system, the endocrine system, and the autonomic nervous system. The autonomic nervous system is that chill that you get down the back of your neck when something startling happens. That's just the beginning. What happens then is that the steroid uh, gland, the adrenal gland, and also the uh, superficial part of that, the piece at the top of the uh, kidney, um, generates first something called norepinephrine and later steroids, which produce the stress response. Steroids then later turn it off. But the most important thing to remember, which is in that red box, is that a sustained response is only for a brief period of time. It's rapidly shut down, and in fact that's what, from our origins, our stress response is designed to do. You're either fighting, running, or you're dead. You don't have to have a long, protracted steroid response. But the environment we live in now, constantly, are we stressed in little ways. And so most people live with a much higher level of steroid production than one would do in the evolutionary contract, uh, concept. So stress and depression then, as you see from that uh, box on the right-hand side, 
tends to be rather <coughs> prevalent. And it's interesting, looking at some of the data that we've seen earlier already, that if you look at different cohorts, people of my age have much less anxiety and depression in these studies, which are epidemiological studies in the US, national studies, large studies, than does, say, my daughter's uh, generation. If you combine that stressful circumstance and that response with abundance, for example, I, as somebody who doesn't have a lot of hair, can't imagine what you do with 1,260 varieties of shampoo. <laughs> but uh, we do have a lot of food to choose from. And that choice is, again, confusing and complicated because we can now gather food very quickly unto us, which we used to have to run for or fight for. So if you take an evolutionary look at this, the interesting thing about the human brain is actually the 200,000-year-old piece that makes us human, that's the frontal lobe, is actually quite recent. And most of what we're working with is a brain which is millions of years old, the reptilian brain, which keeps us functioning in a basic way, and then, of course, the concept of the limbic brain, which is just the first area of the mammalian brain, which leads to attachment and other mammalian-type behaviors. But most importantly, we are still working with that old brain and the cognitive, the rational side, the homo, homo economicus, as we like to talk about it. That is a very indistinct part of our daily activity. You can go into Adam Smith's model and look at that, but I'm not going to do that now because it's fascinating how we actually uh, function still very much in a very primitive way, even though we consider ourselves in a market that's very sophisticated. So these long tracks that come out of the basic brain and arborize up to the frontal lobes are in fact the reward pathways. And so human beings are in fact, as was pointed out earlier, much more interested in the future when they are being rational about things than they are when you face them with an opportunity such as this. You see that the reptilian brain is interested largely in what happens immediately, and it's only when you become cognitively distant that you begin to think, is this good or is this bad? So one simple test, for example, is the chocolate cake test. There's a little uh, restaurant that I go to near where I live in Los Angeles. It's run by a very um, wonderful cook. He's from Montreal, and he loves to bake cakes, and we were there just to a few weeks ago, and uh, at the end of the meal, we all had a very fine meal. He says, oh, why don't you try some dessert? No, thank you so much. We do not want dessert. The dessert he says, well, no, you've got to try my new uh, uh, cheesecake from Montreal. He brings out the cheesecake, he puts it in front of us, three forks, and two minutes later, the whole thing has disappeared. We, you cannot, in fact, contain yourself when presented with some opportunity. If you think about it, you say, no, I don't want chocolate cake, but when it's presented to you, you eat it. That's just, just like the chocolate biscuits outside this morning. Well, we've seen and heard that this is rubbish, and I accept that from our last speaker, but it does point out in a gross way that America is getting much fatter. One of the other important elements is, of course, that there's an enormous reduction in uh, exercise, so the input is now very disparate with the output. The 
the average American now spends more time driving around in the car than they do doing anything else, uh, certainly much more time walking. Well, this is uh, also interesting, is that the TV dinner, we heard about TV earlier, was introduced about the time of that rise that we saw in the first presentation. And the other interesting thing of note is that when you look at the immigrant experience, immigrants in America tend to get fatter over a period of time, which is uh, quite short, really, uh, uh, 10 years. They are substantially larger, usually, than their country of origin. And this obesity tends to be uh, particularly around the middle. In fact, an English study has shown, and this is a very important connection, that this middle uh, abdominal obesity actually ties tied in women, uh, particularly you can see there with the arrow, um, with increasing stress response. So you have this interesting beginning of what is potentially a vicious cycle, where as obesity increases, stress response is also changed, and that moves into the next important element, which is very often neglected in obesity discussions. And that is that when you live in a stressful environment, you tend to try to find more time on which to do the things that you want to do. And where people go when they're looking for more time is largely to the sleep-wake cycle. They say to themselves, I can erode my sleep. And so the average American now takes two hours of sleep out every night. Well, the clock, as you know, in our bodies is something which was invented many, many millions of years ago. Time clocks are, in fact, our own invention. We, physiologically, are still responding, as those of you who came from Seattle last night, to uh, planetary time. And that particular planetary time is reflected not only in the circa-annual uh, activities. For example, we are all slowly gaining weight. Some studies which I did in New England 10 years ago, people gain weight in the winter and they lose weight in the spring. So if you want to recommend to anybody to lose weight, you should tell them to start dieting in the spring. They'll have a much better opportunity. We all sleep more in the winter. These seasonal variations are also eclipsed by the, by the, by the circadian function of sleep. The most important part of the sleep is there on the right-hand side. If you erode your slow-wave sleep and your REM sleep, you are doing yourself a significant damage, as I will now show you. Now, if you look back on the American experience, sleep has been declining for some time. Now, at least in the early uh, 2000, 40% of young people sleep less than seven hours a night. Critical variable is between seven and nine hours for the average person. You need seven to nine hours of sleep to, to function effectively. And at the same time, over these last 20 years, weight gain, of course, has increased very much, and obesity has increased. So the question automatically begins, is there a relationship between them? In these large studies, a million, study, a million persons, in the case of the Kripke study, you find that actually the BMI increased as there was a decreased sleep time. Then if you go to a slightly larger, uh, slightly smaller study but with greater precision, you find that actually 
measuring the polysomnograph, you also find that there is a, those who sleep less weigh more. Take that to a uh, laboratory situation, because the individual authors quite correctly said maybe there's a relationship here, especially with appetite. And some elegant studies by Spiegel and, and um, others have shown that, for example, if you restrict young men to four hours sleep a night, then you will actually change their circadian hormonal function dramatically. First of all, you see, obviously, the change in the sleep cycle, which I was showing you earlier, but you also find abnormalities of the circadian hormonal functions, particularly in thyroid hormones and steroid hormones. But look at the carbohydrate metabolism, which I've tagged with the red, with the red arrow there, Glucose metabolism is 30 to 40% slower in individuals who are sleep deprived. And the acute insulin response is, is also lower. So what you're beginning to see is almost a pre-diabetic condition or an aging condition in people who are sleep deprived. And these are young men between 18 and 27 years old. Ratchet down the microscope just a little bit more and look at what happens when you allow them then to return to a natural sleep of, say, nine to 10 hours, and compare the two, you find that there is a reduction in a very important hormone called leptin, and an increase in another hormone, which is called ghrelin. Ghrelin increases appetite, leptin diminishes appetite. The other fascinating thing is that they complain of increased hunger after short sleep. And in fact, their hunger is for high fat, high salt, sweet things, just as you see in fast food. In fact, anecdotally, I was presenting these data at UCLA some time ago, and the chief of neurosurgeon, who's a friend of mine, came up to me afterwards and said, I know you're right, because every time I'm on call in the morning, I want to go home and have a hamburger. That's a sense of the sort of appetite that sleep deprivation can produce. The other thing which you probably notice personally is that if you don't sleep very well, you sometimes worry whether you're getting a cold. You feel as if you're getting a cold. But then you have a good night's sleep and you don't get a cold. That's because of pro-inflammatory cytokines, which are generated again by short sleep. Now, the other interesting thing is that these same cytokines are actually increased during early obesity, during early weight gain. So again, you can see a beginning of a vicious cycle. Just to summarize the endocrine stuff, think as leptin, that's the one that is actually produced by fat cells. It regulates, helps regulate the food intake, but it suppresses appetite. So lower leptin, is allowing your appetite to grow. Ghrelin, which is produced by the stomach, also promotes appetite. And the pro-inflammatory cytokines, which are produced by sleep, tend to increase the uh, inflammation. Lots of interesting studies in the brain, which I don't have to go into. I don't have time to go into. But they also are generated by early uh, increasing metabolism and that creates this vicious cycle. So, what I would like to leave you with is that you cannot separate these things out. For example, people who are driving their day 
with Starbucks coffee. The large Starbucks coffee in America, and probably here too, contains about equivalent to somewhere six to eight cups of normal coffee. So if you start driving yourself with Starbucks coffee, and you're also stressing yourself by reducing your sleep by two hours a night, you are creating this cascade which then in fact feeds back in a frenzied way to the type of activity that we see all too frequently in our current world. So that's the end of my talk, and um, thank you very much. <laughs>